Thanks very much, Steve, and good afternoon, everybody. Um, I feel a bit of an, well, I am an interloper. I'm not a roaster. I'm nothing to do with the coffee industry. As it says up there, I'm, I'm an ergonomics consultant. I'm an ergonomist working for the Institute of Occupational Medicine, which is, uh, deals with occupational health and safety and is based in Edinburgh in Scotland. Beautiful city. If you've never visited it, I do recommend it. Um, I'm going to try and talk to you a little bit about the ergonomics of coffee roasting. Now, I, I have to start almost not exactly an apology, but by a statement that my experience of coffee roasting, I now I'm increasingly realising, is probably very different to yours. In that I have been to a roastery, but it, it's, I think, a very different scale. Like people this morning were talking about roasting 15 kilos, 20 kilos. I mean, the place I went to, they were, they were roasting 150 kilos at a time or something like that. So it is a different scale, but I, I suspect some of the problems are the same. Um, and I, I'm going to try and give you a few pointers as, as we go along. Um, so I'm going to try and talk about coffee roasting ergonomics. Now, as an ergonomist, I, I have a, a, a marvellous job because I get paid to go around and watch people work. Um, uh, that, that can't get much better than that. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. I've been on to sort of off, offshore on salmon farms and whatever. There are other downsides, and shellfish factory gets a bit niffy, I must admit. Um, but ergonomics is, is, is a scientific discipline which is to do with the interaction between people and their working environment. Um, it, these days, actually, it's gone wider than that. So we talk about the ergonomics of your laptop, the ergonomics of your, la of your washing machine, the ergonomics of your roasting machine, possibly, even. Um, so we'll have a look at things like that as, as we go through. Um, the first thing I have to say is there's, there's a lot more to ergonomics than manual handling. Um, because there are a lot of other things that can influence how we work, how efficiently we work, the risk of how we work causing us injury, how effectively we work, which is nothing to do with musculoskeletal disorders and bad backs and things like that, which is what a lot of people think of when they think about ergonomics. Um, just, I, I've, I've picked a couple of slides here, really just to sort of because they're from cars which most people are familiar with. Like most people in the UK, I, I drive a car with a manual gearbox. Um, and a couple of years ago, I was, I was off working somewhere and I'd got a hire car which had, a, had an automatic gearbox. And at the end of a long day, I'd got up early to fly to an airport, pick up a hire car, drive to the factory, spent the day in the factory. I was heading back to the airport and I stopped at some traffic lights. And being of a certain generation, I, I was well trained, so I, I put the handbrake on into neutral, sat there waiting for the lights to change. And being towards the end of a long day, yes, my mind wandered a bit until the bloke behind me hooted. Sorry, mate, as I waved one hand and with the other hand put, my, put the gear lever into first gear. Now, if those of you who drive automatics will know that the forward selection is reverse. 
Luckily, I did have the handbrake on. Um, so that's ergonomics. That's human error in responding to what is called a control response stereotype. I have a particular way I expect a control to behave. So I expect a gear lever to go into first gear when I push, push the lever forward. Only with an automatic gearbox, it went the other way. The, the two other pictures are, I had a, a, a Fiat Punto. Um, that's probably sort of, half you probably decided, well, you're daft then, aren't you, having such a car? Um, apologies to any Fiat people. No, you won't be. That's all right. Um, this had this peculiar setup, which is actually the slide over there, which is the fuel gauge was the reverse of what you normally expect. So when I glanced at the fuel gauge, I would think, oh, yes, I've got plenty of fuel left because it's going the wrong way. Most fuel gauges empties toward the left, full towards the right. In this particular car, it was the other way around. Misreading the dial, human error, poor ergonomic design. So while a lot of what I'm going to talk about for the rest of the talk is, is to do with handling things and whatever, it's important to realise there's a lot more to ergonomics than that. So I was in the, the, the development of flavour session this morning and we are talking about pressures and flow rates and temperatures. Re if you have a, a, a particular roasting machine and you switch roasting machines and the controls are different and you find that confusing, that's potentially an ergonomics issue. You select the wrong thing because it's a, an unfamiliar machine and you've selected what you're used to. That's an ergonomics issue. If you find it hard to read displays because of the positioning of the, desi of the, of the, of the dials, that's an ergonomics issue. So just to really sort of make you aware of, of the sort of wider ramifications. Now, one of the other things that struck me talking, uh, seeing people around uh, this, this morning is that you're, pr you're predominantly a young industry. Um, that's good from one point of view in that your bodies largely will still be relatively flexible, relatively adaptable, and you won't have the degenerative change that comes with age. The bad news is you've got it all to look forward to. Um, now, again, when people talk about handling things, moving things, whatever, one of the things they tend to think about mainly is the back and the risk of back pain and whatever, particularly when you're lifting those heavy sacks. Um, but I put this slide up just, just as another, another illustration. Sorry. Um, the shoulder is an incredibly complex joint. And if you do a lot of work, as you may well do with the designs of some, some of the machines that you have, when you're doing a, a lot of time, you're, you're lifting stuff up above shoulder height, then what you're doing is, is compressing things in this area here. And quite a common problem we find with people is shoulder problems. Because repeatedly compressing, it's, there's actually a, a, a muscle which comes across here, which so you're, you're trapping that between the, the top of the top of the um, 
top of the arm and part of the shoulder and shoulder girdle. Um, so if you find when you lift, you're doing a lot of lifting up above shoulder height, you're starting to get a wee bit of soreness in your shoulder, that's what it could be all, all about. Now, thinking about lifting and handling things, um, I put this chart up because it gives you a, a reasonable idea of how the amount that you lift affects the load on your body. These are some guidance weights which have been produced in the UK. And as a, as a rough guide, the, the amounts here produce the same strain on the low back. So lifted from above shoulder height at arms well away from the body, five kilos has the same impact on your back as 25 kilos lifted close to the body. So when it comes to lifting and handling heavy objects, if you go away from this afternoon with one message, it's give it a cuddle. Get the load close to the body. The, the distance of the load away from the body is the most powerful influence. It's basic levers. Some of you, I mean, I'm sure you all remember at schools doing, doing levers and whatever. The, the, the length of the lever arm is critical. So I appreciate if it's something that's hot, it's, it's difficult. If it's something that's dirty, it's difficult, particularly if you've got, it's got your nice clothes on or whatever. But if you're going to be lifting heavy, messy things, wear old stuff, wear a coverall or something to allow you to give it a cuddle. Get the load close to the body. Another good way of injuring your back is twisting while you're lifting. The, the discs in your back have a lot of concentric layers to them, which are very strong in compression. So the load's going straight down through your spine, no problem at all. If you twist them, you're causing shear forces in those, in those discs. Again, a good way of injuring your, body, your, your back. And the third thing is bending. Stooping down to pick something up, you're, you're causing, tr again, tremendous strains within the structures in your back. Um, in fact, Looking at, again, the age of the audiences may well be a familiar scenario to you, but if you want a good way of injuring your back, try lifting a recalcitrant 18-month-old out of a car seat in the back of, a, back of the car. You're stooping to get them. They don't want to be lifted out either because they're having a temper tantrum, sorry. Um, and uh, you know, so they're, they're, they're resisting. And you're twisting, maybe you've got a, and you've got a three-door car, so you're twisting to get, get them out. You've got twisting, you've got stooping, you've got lifting at arm's length, you've got everything there. So if you want a ready rector for remembering the bad ways of injuring your back, just picture lifting that, that small child out of the back of a car. Anyway, moving on to um, the, the coffee roasting, I visited a... a commercial coffee roaster um, in Edinburgh um, because they had some musculoskeletal issues. And I looked at a number of things, handling the sacks of green beans, transferring the beans to, to, the, to the grinder. Some of their stuff, 
product went out ground, some went out as whole beans, transferring the whole ground or whole beans to, to the bagger and then handling the bag product. They don't sell into the retail market, it's, only, it's wholesale only, they sell into cafes and restaurants and whatever, um, so the bags were, were relatively large compared to what might go into retail. Um, now you don't need me to tell you that sacks of coffee are heavy. They're around 70 kilos. In some European countries, that is probably illegal. Um, those of you based in Europe may be aware there's something called the Manual Handling Directive. Um, and all the countries in the European Union have regulations that implement the provisions of those dire that directive. Um, they vary as to how they've implemented it. In, in the UK, I mean, I use these figures. The UK just gives you guidance. So their guidance is 25 kilos. But in some other countries, they actually set a limit of uh, 50 kilos. The exception is France, where for some reason they allow you to lift 110, but that's uh, <laughs> vive la différence, as they say. Um, but to, for most people, 70 kilos is heavy. In fact, it's more than in, in engineering terms, actually, it's probably more like very heavy. Um, now. A lot of these sacks are, are normally handled manually, and uh, I dread to think the people in the producers, what impact it's having on them. They probably all give, up a, give it up at a young age, I would guess, because um, they've, they've knackered their backs. Um, and what, what we found was that the, the, the company had, a, had an issue. They re realized that handling these sacks wasn't a good idea. They were, were looking for ideas that, well, they were looking, A, for confirmation that it wasn't a good idea, and B, what they could do about it. Um, and these are just some sketches of some of the ideas that they came up with, um, because what they were doing, in fact, what I'll do is I'll just jump ahead to... They were looking to transfer the beans, the green beans, into this hopper, which is down at floor level. And essentially what they were doing uh, to start with was lifting the sacks across to this, um, putting them down next to it, and then somehow upending them, cutting the top open, upending them, and, and tipping them into the hopper. Um, what we suggested was uh, putting it onto some sort of holding table where they could then cut the end of the sack and pour it down into uh, a transfer hopper. Um, what they actually came up with was they sourced this simple sack lifter, which allowed them to lift the, the sack itself. Um, and you can see the, the, the bin that they, they made, made there, not as, not as complicated as the one that, that uh, I'd suggested. So they lift the sack across to the bin, cut the end of the sack, the beans fall down into the bin, and then they can simply wheel the bin across, and there's a shutter mechanism at the base to open the shutter to allow the beans to go into the hopper. Um, one of the things I forgot to mention is, is be, to get the optimum flow through, what they needed to do with the sacks was walk round while they were emptying them. 
so that they were discharging around the hopper. Of course, with this wheeled bin, they could just push the bin round as it emptied um, to give them that distribution. So what that actually effectively done is removed any need to manually handle those sacks. Um, now, I thought about that in, in terms of smaller scale, and you may feel that something like that is perhaps not appropriate, not justified for, for how you work. Um, so one of the things I, I thought about was, was a simple device like this. Some of you may have seen pallet trucks. And what this is, is a height-adjustable pallet truck. So you, could, you can wind it down to sort of normal height for a pallet truck. If you have your, your sacks on pallets, you could then drag the sack across, perhaps put a metal sheet, a smooth metal sheet across the, uh, across the forks. You could drag the sack across onto that, and then you can raise it to whatever level you want, cut the end open and, and pour it out, or make a cut underneath and put something in underneath to discharge it into, anything like that. Yes, you've still got the dragging, but that's not going to be so much of an effort. Um, but you've got the option there of, of, again, avoiding so much manual handling, of avoiding the need to lift that 70 kilos of, of sack. The next thing they were doing uh, was they had a discharge point where the, the roasted beans, after they'd been cooled, were being uh, transferred to a grinder. And they used for that, they used sort of plastic bins. So they would put round about 25 kilos of roasted beans into a bin at a time. And then they would take the bins up to uh, a mezzanine floor and lift those 25 kilo bins and tip them into an, another sort of input hopper, uh, again set in the floor, um, sorry, again set in the floor uh, to pour the coffee down into the grinder. And they had almost exactly the same setup for pouring the ground coffee or the whole beans down into the bagging machine. They used gravity a lot. They would, they would use, a, use a hoist or of some sort to take the sacks up um, and then load uh, at the higher level so it then came down using gravity to, uh, to fill the bags or to go through the, the grinder. Um, and... What we came up with was the idea of, of replacing the plastic bins with, again, uh, some form of hopper uh, so that the discharge from, from the, the cooling trays would go straight into here. Um, they, could, they could have these could be bigger so they wouldn't be restricted to just the amount they could manually handle. They could fill the hopper and then this could be wheeled. Uh, it had provision for using a forklift truck, this could be wheeled to their discharge point, again, open the shutter, allow it to drop down. So again, we're removing the need to lift and move heavy weights around, uh, to lift things up to high levels or, or whatever. Um, we're using mechanical aids of one sort or another. Um, and then the, the last part we looked at was, was handling the bag product. Um, 
And what tended to happen was the bags would be put into boxes and the boxes would be packed on pallets on the floor. So you have pallets around about a metre square. So you'd start close to, you'd be stretching across to the other side, bending right across the, the pallet to the other side of the pallet with the box. You'd gradually be building it up so the top level was round about shoulder height. Um, again, not very clever. What we suggested was some form of pallet table. This can go right down again, more or less to, to floor level. In fact, you can set it into the floor if you want to, if you, if, you, if you have the capability of doing that, so it can be completely flush with the floor to start with. But as you put more load onto it, so the height of it is reduced, so that you are always handling at that optimum roundabout waist height level, so that the height you're lifting from varies depend uh, the height you're lifting to stays the same so these are just sort of simple looks at some of the problems we encountered um, i tried to keep it relatively short because i think it's more important that you have the opportunity to say yeah but what about this problem i've got um, one of the things i enjoy is having to think on my feet so uh, I basically say, right, over to you. What, what handling problems, what ergonomics problems do you encounter that you think, A, should I be doing this? B, if not, what can I do about it? Thank you. Round of applause there for Richard. Please come take a seat. Wow. Um, it's kind of scary as an employer when you start talking about stuff like this, <laughs> particularly when one of your employees is here and he's going to go back with all of these ideas and uh, all of these expenses. A question I want to ask is, from seeing the roastery that you saw, what yep. is the, the, like the one killer thing we can do in our roasteries that has the biggest benefit with the least impact on, on the cost part that everybody should be doing I would say looking at some way of mechanically handling those sacks in the first place. Once, once you break the sacks down, you've got smaller weights, um, they're more manageable, uh, you, you have more control. Because you have no control over these weights coming in, that's, and they are the heaviest things, um, that's, that's the main thing. Just, I'm sure everybody kind of, as they saw that sack truck kind of thing being moved around, going, how much was that? Do you have any idea how much that kind of cost the investment involved there? Uh, not a lot is a short answer. Yeah. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly. We're, we're looking um, probably between one and two thousand pounds. So about, um, so about three million, about, about two euro then with the pound doing yeah, what it's doing. Um, <laughs> but if you if you think of that, you know, you've got. Uh, You've got a lot of expertise in the people working in your roastery. Um, and there is, it, it's quite apparent, there's, there's, there's a, a large degree of art to it as much as science. Mm -hmm. So if you have one of your, your key people off sick for a week because, they, because they've done something to their back, how much is that going to cost you? So it's, it's a long-term saving when you... So when, when you think of it in terms of the implications of not doing something and the potential consequences, 
um, it, it takes on a different perspective. I've had a lot of conversations with kind of people like this morning and, and a little bit last night that they're in the very early stages of setting up a roastery. So they're going through the initial parts. What advice would you give them to like to, to be the, the priorities in their mind as they're setting up that new roastery? Look at the look out the lay, look at the layout of the roastery in terms of the flow of uh, pro, flow of product through the roastery um, to to optimise that. Um, look at the premises in terms of accessibility. Uh, it's all very well me talking about having these these hoists and whatever, but if you're in some listed building uh, that that has steps everywhere. Then, uh, as as we know, you know, for those those who know, Daleks can't go up steps. Um, you know, things on wheels don't go up steps very well. Um, so, looking at the design of where you're going to be working uh, is, is is a critical factor. So, um, the guys haven't been using Slingo, so I'm going to throw it out to the floor for traditional questions. Has anybody got a question that they'd like to ask Richard while he's uh, here? Like, this is a free consultation moment for you. <laughs> and uh, your hourly rate is normally like, thousands of pounds, oh. I would imagine. Yes. So, cheap, has anybody cheap, got a question they'd like to answer? And to ask. Perhaps I can They're ask. They're very ask. shy. Perhaps I can ask a question. How, how many of you have had back trouble at one time or another? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's quite interesting, actually, because for, for a relatively young audience, I mean, that is, that is an indication that, that, yeah, there are problems out there. Um, if, yeah, there's... Richard, um, I'm one of those newbie roasters. Sorry. Thanks. Um, I'm one of those uh, newbie roasters, and um, uh, one of the challenges I have is that uh, I'm based in quite a remote location, um, and when I do have uh, delivery, uh, it tends to come uh, in a quite a big truck, um, but without any equipment. Right. So the truck arrives, the pallet is there. It's maybe seven, eight hundred kilos of of coffee. Um, if I'm lucky, the coffee is still all in its bag and it's still positioned perfectly on the pallet. But I've had pallets broken, and so <laughs> I'm hauling the bags off the truck with the truck driver. Um, so I'm not sure how we can mitigate that, other than penalizing either the wholesaler for not stocking the coffee uh, correctly or, or maybe should I be putting more pressure on the freight company um, that they should uh, make sure that their staff have the equipment that they need to get the coffee into the roastery. Um, to be, what can I do to make Yeah, to be that? honest, getting the staff onto your premises is their job. Um, I appreciate that, that that is, in the short term at least, that's not very helpful. Um, but in the long term, yes, they they have a duty. Um, a lot of the a lot of the bigger companies they will have their own pallet trucks or whatever um, that they will use. They will have vehicles with with drop drop backs or whatever, to, so they can lower them down, wheel stuff in. Um, that they they should be looking at that themselves. Um, so push it push it back to them. Yeah. And I, and I think in that as well, a lot of um, a lot of it, like uh, ex importers, sorry, you can request to have the tail lift option on there, and that's something that they'll actually put on the documents when you order. So you've got um, they know that you haven't got the forklift there and, and things like that. It's uh, it's important to talk to the importer as well about making sure that they're doing their their work. Another question, great. 
Can you use Slingo though as well, please? Hi. <clears throat> Hello. Thank you uh, for your introduction. And um, I got a question regarding that. Mostly, what you mentioned was like the problems uh, came back out of the gravity, so uh -huh. like lifting the weights and everything. But do you have any kind of like recommendations about like the lights inside the roastery? Like the, the lights. I mean the the how light it should be, or how what's the frequency of the lights and uh, like to keep it like normal and healthy for the people and at the same time like uh, useful for get the correct numbers and uh, feelings working with the beans okay um in terms of working area uh then the the, the sort of standard levels of, of probably about 200 lux um frequency it, it's not normally an issue uh you have you have without getting too technical you have you have something called critical fusion flicker fusion frequency um, for most people, uh, that is below that that f fusion level is below the normal levels of so that these lights, for example, in the ceiling here are actually continuously flickering. They're just flickering too fast for most people to see, um, particularly with modern ones because they'll run at 100 hertz rather than 50 hertz. So frequency is not normally a, an issue. Light level is. Um, so you need to think of, in, in one respect, it's an industrial setting, so the light level needs to be suitable for that. However, there is a, there is a further issue, which is when you are roasting coffee, one of the things that you are very interested in is the color of those beans. And the nature of the lighting you use will, as you, I'm sure you all know, will influence that color. When you do, anybody, have you ever, anybody ever done the color blindness test where you look, at the, look for the little, little numbers within the colored dots? You have to do that in the right color lighting because if you don't, you'll get different answers. So if you use lighting like this in this room here, your coffee will look a different color to compared with, say, the down the the LED down lighters out in the out in the corridor, um, or if you took the coffee outside. So color rendition is an important part of what you do. So at least where you are looking at that color and making a judgment of that color, you need to be think very carefully about the color of the light, not just the level. Right, <clears throat> right, but I mean, there's is there any kind of like regulations that, as you mentioned, like in France, there's a limit like for 100 kilos, right? <laughs> and like, I mean, like kind of like similar things for, for the lights and uh, everything like that, uh, only that it should be adequate. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but what is adequate depends on what you're doing. If you're, if you're doing very fine needlework, you may need 2000 lux, um, if you're doing relatively crude just sort of stacking stuff in a storeroom then 50 lux is probably enough um, bright moonlight is about 10 or 15 lux and that's perfectly adequate for moving around in but not very good for doing much work in um, before going to the next question guys at the back can I ask you to come down the sides or take one of the seats because we're going to be setting up the cupping for the next part um, we just need to kind of clear that space um, we were having a little conversation before, uh, before you started about um, dust and smoke inhalation uh -huh. and yep. things like that. I mean, what advice can you give to the audience about kind of minimizing the risks of that and what to be careful of? Right. 
Um, obviously, you will get dust from the sacks, from the dry beans and whatever. Um, most organic dusts have at least the potential to be allergenic. Um, that you can, you can become basically allergic to the, to the dust off the coffee. Uh, so you may want to, ideally, you have some form of extractor system that takes the dust away. Um, I appreciate that, again, in small scale, that may not be so easy, in which case, yes, you want some form of, of uh, respiratory protection. Uh, the same may apply to uh, fumes coming off the roasting coffee. Now, I, I don't know all the details, but I know that some of, the, some of the chemicals that come off the coffee when you roast it are potentially toxic. Um, so again, the ideal, I mean, in any case, the roaster will probably have an extraction system, um, but you, you do want to be aware that, that, that those fumes are potentially harmful. Um, if you're going to wear a mask, you need to be conscious of the fact that a mask which you wear to protect, protect you against the coffee dust will probably not protect you against the fumes. All masks are not the same. Um, a, a, you, you get a grade of masks for, of different in, uh, degrees of protection and also for different types of protection. So for a dust, a, dust fil a, a simple filtering face piece will be different to one that will absorb the chemicals um, in the fumes. Um, and I can't tell you which one because there are a whole raft of different things that you have. Um, but uh, you do, they probably, it's probably something with some form of activated charcoal in or something like that. Um, we've actually got somebody put a question on Slido. Um, wow. Slido.com, the number you need is 1759. So we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I thought we should, yep. we should do it. Yep. And it's from, um, thank you, Joanna. Joanna Alm says, is there some kind of stretching activity or gym practice that would help more with your lifting with lots of cartons? <laughs> um, we're often asked about this because everybody says, oh, athletes warm up, don't they, before a race? Um, yes, and how many athletes do you see pull muscles during the race? Um, as you get older, your joints get stiffer, so a bit of movement will help there. Uh, basically, the human body is designed for movement. Now, I know a, a lot of you will do as much as you can to avoid movement most of the time. Um, that's not actually very good for the body. Muscles and joints need movement to keep them moving properly. It's, it's like any machinery. If, you, if you've got a machine that, that normally has oil through it, like, like, an, like an old car, if you left that old car sitting for six months, the oil will drain out and the joints will dry. And when you first start it up, you have to be very careful. I'm not suggesting you don't move your body for six months, but in principle, the same thing happens. The joints dry out, so a little movement just helps to start things going. I wouldn't necessarily recommend specific exercise, but just movement. In fact, I'd be very careful about stretching, particularly cold muscles. It's a good way of injuring them. Um, just getting some gentle movement. If, yes, if you are going to be lifting stuff. I mean. Uh, a good tip, if you've just been driving somewhere, you've got a further thing which is called vibro creep, which is basically compacting your spine. 
So maybe if you've just been to the wholesalers to pick some kit up and you're lifting it out the back of the car when you get back, having just driven back hour and a half, two hours, just sort of moving your body around a bit before you go around to the back of the car and start lifting stuff out of the boot would be a good idea. Just to get joints moving, muscles moving before you, you put a lot of effort into it. And I'm, I'm wary that Jen's staring at me saying we should wrap up now, but I am going to ask one last question that's come in. Sorry, Jen. <laughs> um, if you can keep it short, it'll stop me being killed. Right. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Can we have a vote on whether I keep the answer short? <laughs> no, no, don't ask these lots. Don't ask these lots. Um, um, sound pollution. Um, oh, is there anything that we should be aware of that we can do the simple fixes and, and I think that's what we're looking for in our rosaries are simple solutions to these complex complex problems uh, what level of sound are you talking about uh, I don't know because it's called right, anonymous right. Um, I, again the ideal is is stopping is buying quieter machinery um, the usual, the usual sort of hierarchy, and it would be the same with with dust or whatever. Buying less less dusty or quieter machinery. The next thing is to enclose the machinery so you keep the sound in that specific area. Um, the third thing, obviously, is personal protection. Um, generally speaking, personal protection is not the best solution, but it is the, usually the cheapest, at least in the short term, and the easiest to implement. Thank you for keeping it short. Please join me in putting your hands together for Richard Graveling. <laughs>